This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. Today, we are going to talk about a new book that's out called The Isis Reader, and I'm so excited to have all the three authors on the show today to talk about the book. So before further ado, we have Hororo Ingram on the show, who is a senior research fellow at the Program on Extremism. We have Craig Whiteside, who's an associate professor with the Naval War College at the Post excuse me, at the Naval Postgraduate School, and he's also a Program on Extremism Fellow. And then last but not least, we have Charlie Winter, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. So first and foremost, thank you for coming on the show. Gentlemen and friends and amazing researchers, I'm very excited to talk about the book. Why don't we start off with, and this is a question for both all three of you, what was the inspiration behind this book? And in your opinions, why is it important? Well, the idea for the book, Chelsea, and you know, thanks for having us uh, on the show today, of course. Uh, the idea of the, for the book kind of came up in um, conversations that, that, that we were kind of having over the years, you know. And for us, because so much of our own kind of re- research, but also our experiences in the field as practitioners, you know, we, we kind of had this appreciation for the importance of primary sources and primary source analysis and ensuring that you know you adopt a methodical approach to to that primary source analysis and so over time it was just this idea that kind of continued to evolve um, over the years and it just made sense for us to kind of go with a reader format and 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 so yeah we one of the hardest parts I guess of putting this book together you can imagine you know we're trying to cover decades of history. This book, I mean, the first text that is kind of featured in um, this book is a speech by Zakawi from 1994. And we go all the way through to Baghdadi's final speech in 2019. So you can imagine with that amount of history, you know, the, just the range of different kind of sources that, that, that we um, could potentially have, have, have kind of used. And so, yeah, that as those kind of conversations kind of evolved over time we we kind of began that process of of kind of selecting those key kind of speeches and internal documents bits of propaganda that we felt captured these kind of the the strategic and historical evolution of this movement would anyone else like to tell us why you feel like the book is so important and also Another follow-up question to that would be a lot of people are going to read the book from different fields, perspectives, and so forth. So we have students, researchers, practitioners, other academics. So what can individuals from the field of more knowledgeable on ISIS and, you know, the deep dive people versus someone maybe with basic knowledge of ISIS? So what can each sector learn from the book and gain from it? I'll just jump in uh, uh, quickly to, to follow up what Aurora was saying that, and, and also hopefully speak to, to your second question as well, Chelsea. Just to, to kind of reiterate that the, the, the 
point of the book is to capture the arc of this movement over over the course of the the last three decades and and in doing so in its own words and then providing that level of analysis to 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 accompany the extracts of the primary sources we have included we hope to 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 do something a little bit different to many other works that are out there about the history of the islamic state movement which there are some really excellent pieces of work done there but kind of from a methodological perspective we hope to offer something that was more grounded in the doctrine of the the organization the strategy of it and something where you can trace the the way that the the, the group has transformed not only as it has come to face different situational exigencies in Iraq or Syria, but also with leaders as well, and the role that those leaders have had in, in shaping the movement and, and its, its legacy as well. So I, so I guess kind of that feeds into your second question about what this has that can kind of cater to different audiences. I mean, one of the audiences that I'm, I'm most keen to, to, to kind of discuss this book with would be people who are working as practitioners in in counter Islamic states operations or, or CT capacities, simply because one thing that I, I think we're all kind of obsessed with, and I, I, I hope I speak for Horror and Craig there. I think probably I do. We're we're obsessed with the the kind of strategy behind the operations of this group, but both kind of on a, a tactical basis as they are happening on a day to day a day to day case, but also just again, thinking about the arc of the group and thinking about how it's weathered various storms in the past, something that's particularly salient now that in many ways it's uh, a shadow of its former self. It doesn't have a, uh, a big lump of territory that it's administering and governing and all that stuff. But as we can see from Iraq especially, but, but elsewhere as well, right now it is still very much active, still very much surviving beyond um, the territorial defeat that it faced in eastern Syria last year. So, again, by by having that kind of long period of time that we're dealing with in the course of the, what, 15 chapters or so that are in the book, hopefully this will kind of speak to where the group might head in the future. We don't make any like big predictions or anything, but but hopefully it will enable readers to, to get a sense of really the kind of essence of, of what makes it tick, or at least what has made it tick over the last 30 or so years. Yeah, I mean, something that I'd add to what Charlie just said there is that even the way that we have kind of structured the book, we, we had in kind of the forefront of our minds, well, the, the, the range of audiences that we wanted, you know, hopefully to have, to, to have an interest in this book from, you know, from undergraduate students to kind of senior seasoned kind of researchers and, and absolutely for, for, for practitioners, whether they're in civil society, strategic policy, and, 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 and even operators. And so we, we structured the book so that it could be read in a range of different ways. You know, you can read this book from cover to cover, and you can kind of cover that arc that, that, that Charlie's talking about uh, there. But you can also read, read the book by focusing in on certain chapters. The book is divided into kind of four parts, and that, that kind of represent these four historical periods. And you can, you can kind of dive into that. You can go into part one, that, that is kind of that foundation building kind of period under Sakawi's leadership. You can go to part two, that kind of takes you from the establishment of ISI through the, through, through the Sawa, their near decimation um, um, at the hands of uh, the Sawa and coalition forces. Or you can start 
with the with part three with the declaration of the Islamic State in Iraq um, and, and Al Sham, and that will take you through to part four, where the group starts to um, the movement starts to to decline um, again. And so, you can also engage with the text in a sense and just pick it up, and you can go straight to certain th- themes. You go to the index page, you can go to certain themes. You can you can you can hone in on. The, the, the speeches of certain leaders, whether it's Akawi or you can look at kind of the evolution of Adnani's, you know, kind of presentations to, to, to the world. And so even the, the way in which the book is structured, we really thought about, well, how can we ensure that this is a book that is going to be useful to as broad an audience um, as possible, um, but still really focused in on those those fundamental kind of strategic and historical dynamics that kind of drove the evolution of, of, of the movement. And I'll say as a reader and someone looking from it from more of the research perspective and lens, it is great because you can either read it front to cover and follow that arc, which you've done really well and match sort of the main points in history of the group very nicely. Or as you said, you can just pick it up and start in the middle or the end section, depending on what you're looking for. So it's really flexible, which is nice. Craig, let's, let's get your take on this since you haven't said anything yet. Um, thanks, Chelsea. And thanks for, thanks for having us on. I, I would just add to, to uh, my two colleagues that, you know, accessibility is actually, it, it's a difficult, it's been difficult to access the, the primary sources and works of this group more than people think. We tend to gravitate as research field towards Dabak and Rumia because these are English language and very accessible. But the, but the, this group is is quite adept at manipulating its audiences. So it, it's it's we felt you know getting the I think the almost all of the the sources here were originally in Arabic and translated over. So to give more accessibility, and then that adds to a second point, which is accuracy for us for researchers as well um, beyond the practitioners who can engage now with with directly with the group. Academics as well sometimes are forced in in looking at this group or using this group in case studies for theoretical examinations. Frequently are using secondary sources to an interpretations of the group. And quite a few of those are wrong. And you can see those pop up in 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 really you know really good works in the field. But that that be because of distortions of history and really errors in translation and interpretation or even rival propaganda or U.S., you know, the U.S.'s own propaganda, it, it, the, the group has a distorted or people have distorted views of, of the group's ev- evolution and development that are corrected here because it's laid out in the group's own words about what happened, you know, when they're, when they're telling the truth, of course. And that's actually a perfect segue into my next question, which is this concept of primary sources and the milestone texts and why they're so important to read them and understand them to have basically a better understanding of ISIS. Like, let's talk about that a bit. And whoever wants to jump in, I feel free. Sure. I mean, that, that question is kind of, the question for this book, you know, I mean, is is the, the value of primary source materials and 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 it, it it it's so important that that you're engaging appropriately with these primary source materials. And we've tried we tried to ensure that this book in a sense kind of demonstrated the the, the, the 
a way to engage with the primary source materials. We were very conscious of, you know, not just some really important analytical and methodological issues here, but there were some legal and ethical issues that were important to us as well. Because, you know, this is a book that does kind of feature the the statements and doctrine of, 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 of Islamic State. And so, we, you know, we have, a, we have a great publisher and kind of they sort out legal advice for us. And, and, and the feedback that we'd received was that, that there shouldn't be any problems because of how we were presenting the primary source materials, you know. So what you'll see is that every chapter begins with some introductory com- comments that basically provide the reader with some context for the primary source that they are about to engage in. Typically, it will establish kind of the historical context for it. Maybe it'll paint a bit of a strategic picture for for the reader. And just to kind of help to kind of prime and frame the reader for what what they are about to see, what they're about to read. And even throughout the primary source material, when when, when we present it, you know, there are footnotes um, throughout a lot of that material that are kind of pointing out discrepancies, where the group is lying, where they were kind of proved to be kind of false, where their predictions were wrong. But I think most importantly is that the chapter, the chapters end with an analysis of that primary source material, kind of really getting kind of stuck into not just its details from a content perspective, but again, placing it in context of the past and also with the benefit of, of hindsight. And it's actually a way for us that, that, that the analysis that proceeds the primary source material to kind of then set up the next chapter. And so, you know, we, we took a very kind of conscious approach to the way the text was um, structured in that sense. I think, you know, this, this book is, we hope is a contribution to a greater appreciation for the value of primary source materials, an appreciation for how a methodical approach to those materials is, 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 is really important and, and being conscious of the lenses and the frameworks that, that, that we're using to analyse those primary source materials. But I think it actually goes beyond just an, an academic and scholarly and also a practitioner kind of implications. What Engaging with primary source materials does is, is it. I think it's important for the mentality of the scholar and the practitioner, and the kind of culture that emerges in teams, because it forces you, as an analyst, as a practitioner, to think about history, strategy, operations, decisions from the perspective of the adversary. But it also, in a sense, demands that you critically reflect um, upon yourself and whether it's the biases that you might bring to the to the analysis because of the particular disciplinary perspective that you have or maybe as a practitioner the kind of biases that you might bring because of uh, because of your training or perhaps because of the direction you've received from command I, I think that engagement with primary source materials is 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 very, really valuable for, for a range of reasons and, and I hope that we kind of try to capture some of that in in some small way if I can just uh, jump in quickly to, to echo what Ferraro said, but also to just kind of underline the fact that the sources that we have drawn from for the book, they, they tell a pretty comprehensive story of, of, of how the 
Islamic State got to where it is today and, and, and our analysis kind of layers in and nuances and, and, and contextualizes all of those texts in a way that, that, that kind of enables them to speak to the reader in a, a, a more critical light, as, as Haro was just saying. But I think it's worth noting that the Islamic State as a producer of primary sources is, is I mean, a, a very productive movement. I mean, uh, of course, insurgent groups the world over, they, they engage in outreach, they engage in influence. It's, it's what insurgents do. They're, they're trying to, to tap into populations for a particular sets of reasons. But the Islamic State, it did so in a way which was, I don't know if it's necessarily right to say unprecedented. I, I think there's, that, that is a word that we use or that is used far too much in the context of this group because so much of what it does is entirely precedented and that's one of the, the, the beguiling things about it. But, but in terms of the sheer scope and scale and, and, and quantity of these materials, it, it, it really is, it's out there. And there are a lot of texts that we wanted to include in this that we didn't have the, the space to. And I remember we we're quite far down the, uh, the, the drafting process when the last text that we included emerged. And, and I mean, that was kind of a, a microcosm of the, the, the whole process of putting the book together. I mean, selecting what amounts to a handful of, of, of sources to tell a really, really complex story was, was, was a challenge. But I think what, what I'm really pleased with on the other side of this is that we, we managed to get in quite a range. So there's internal strategy doc documents that, that haven't really seen the light of day, certainly not in uh, translation before. There's leadership statements that have seen the light of day, but, but usually as quotations in newspaper articles or, or people kind of summarizing, um, summarizing them into to, to tweets and whatnot. And then there's the kind of field guides that, that are handed out to, to mid-level commanders or, or people in the rank and file. There's a, a, a very kind of wide range of stuff in there. So, I think that, that variation also is, is, is another kind of, uh, it puts us at an advantage to have been able to, to, to capture what it is that this group's about and, and how it, it's got to that stage as well. So going back to the structure of having this nice arc of history, I think a lot of people offhand think of the Islamic State when Baghdadi announced it in, in the mosque why is it so important to trace it back to its earliest roots to understand it fully? So you've done that really great with the texts that you used, and I wanted to talk about that a bit. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here, Chelsea. I mean, you're right. I mean, I'd say almost half of the book is prior to Baghdadi announcing the, the caliphate, and, and that's intentional. That is to provide the foundation. It, it, does, it covers the Zarqawi period, which has been covered really well, by many, many people uh, in, in great ways. But so we, in that part, we, we tried to put some unique primary sources that people might not have read before that are, that look at as our Cowie's evolution as, a, as the, in, as the founder, the charismatic founder of the, of the movement before it becomes the Islamic state. But then also 
giving a good explanation in the first year of the Islamic State, 2006 to seven, of how it politically forms amongst other smaller groups and then this large behemoth, which was Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and the Mujahideen Shura Council. So, and, and that is usually, it's so complicated and complex and there's moving pieces and people getting killed and people being captured during it that, uh, and the group is clandestine and opaque and doing a little bit of deception too to protect themselves. So in the end, it, it's almost a story that it's hard to get right for most people. And, and But going back and listening to them tell their own story obviously has some tremendous advantages. And we allow them to do that with, as Hororo says, the context of analysis of understanding what is exaggerated or distorted by them on purpose versus what we've we've gotten wrong in the field and as governments in, in analyzing this group. So so telling that, understanding that the, the, the challenges they had early on and the backlash once they became powerful, which is which obviously informs their thinking when they established the Caliphate in twenty fourteen. They've they've been there before and that's a little bit different than I think most people's perceptions of this group is, is that, you know, that they, that they had these predecessor groups, they, they failed, fell apart, and then out of the remnants is how it's usually described, the Islamic State, some kind of mystically reforms and moves on, when in reality, there's a continuity and consistency here that's pretty impressive, and it, certainly they've been politically and militarily defeated before but that also informs, you know, what they're like today. Just on that continuity point, I think there's there's a whole load of different ways that that, 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 that continuity manifests itself. But I, I think, and this is one of the, the the really good things about putting the book together without being cheesy. It was it was great learning a lot off both Horror and Craig, and and we each have our kind of our own favorite sources that we like to be nerdy about. Um, sorry if I'm indirectly calling you guys nerdy, but well, I am. But but I remember Craig some time ago. <laughs> some time ago, you um you pointed me uh, towards that. Was it? It was Abu Hamza. The the I forget the name of it, but it was it was a speech published just after he had died about the 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 importance of media jihad, as he was calling it, but essentially strategic communication, production of propaganda, distribution offline and and online, and that that for me something that was published 10 years ago but the, the kind of principles that, have, that, that that run throughout that document not only are they still very relevant today from a kind of an outside perspective as someone analyzing islamic state influence operations but also within the group itself they they've emerged time and time again in in different forms so the the, the document we do have in there that, that focuses on media jihad or strategic communication that is essentially a rehashing of the Abu Hamza statement back from 2010. It was published in 2014-15. And then there was just a couple of months ago, back in December, there was a, an editorial in, in the newspaper, Naba, the Islamic State newspaper, Naba, which, which again rehashed those same principles. And I mean, it's pretty, it says something about an organization, doesn't it? If, if the, at the core of, of something like it's, it's Stratcom, operations, its practices, its doctrine, its, its, its belief about what communication and information can do, if, if that has withstood the test of time and, and, and a lot of war over a period of at least a decade, I mean, that's, that's one of the, the 
the key reasons that we think a book like this makes sense in this life. And it's that kind of continuum there that Charlie and Craig are, uh, are referring to that it, it says so much about the resilience of this movement over time, but particularly when things are bad, um, when things are harsh for them. And, you know, so often this talk about resilience and, and the ability of this movement to kind of survive is often linked to this idea of resilience. Whereas I think it's actually far more, well, I think sophisticated than that actually, but a much better measure and indicator of the resilience of a movement is precisely these continuums because it does, as Charlie has said, it hints to certain principles that you can find in the foundations of this movement that have kind of remained true and have been adhered to throughout that history. But it's, there's also adaptions that, that, that need to be required along the way. And, and I think that that says so much about, I guess, the true resilience um, of, 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 of the movement it is precisely these continuums. That, that you see and you know it's, it's it's for me even going through this text and just the process of putting the book together and and absolutely learning from you know Craig and Charlie throughout this process is that it's especially in part one and two of the book that you just you're even though you can intellectually know something when you're reading it and you're going back over it again it, it just strikes you just how much of, 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 of these kind of principles and concepts, that these continuums are rooted in absolutely in the foundations of the movement. And, you know, if you, you, you can't read the, the, the first basically five chapters of the book without kind of leaving it um, with, 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 with that sense. Actually, this is a great transition into my next question, which is about the cohesiveness of the group. And it, it remained fairly cohesive throughout its lifespan and still is to an extent. And on that point, what can we learn from the texts about this and how they have formed such a strong, cohesive unit? And also, are there things we can learn from the primary source texts that can potentially help us combat ISIS in the future or sway the group into not forming strongly again, perhaps in the future, depending on what happens? So I'll just jump in quickly there. I imagine both Horror and Craig will have stuff to add to this, but I've been thinking a lot about the, the cohesive nature of the Islamic State movement as a global entity in particular over the last 72 hours because they on thursday evening at it was 9 20 my time so so british summertime they embarked or or, or kind of declared uh, a new they do these things called uh, a battle of attrition um, or raid of attrition which is essentially where all of the different provinces and and manifestations of the islamic state or at least uh, a number of them if not all conduct a, a series of attacks, complex, opportunistic, low impact, high impact, 
at a, a greater level of intensity for a period of two to three days, maybe four days, sometimes a little bit longer. And, and this is the, the third battle of attrition. There's been two other raids, uh, two other things like it. One after, uh, is a few weeks after the, the uh, battle of, of Baragos came to a close. And then there was another to avenge Baghdadi and Muhaj's death took place just around Christmas time. But in any case, what, what I find very interesting is the, to think about is the logistical planning that goes into something like that. Of course, there's a, a, a great multiplicity of different operations that are, are, are taking place. I mean, we've had, I think, 25 um, separate attacks claimed under the, the banner of this, this raid, just the last one a couple of minutes ago in Syria. And, and there's a, 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 a big, a lot of diversity in, in what's actually going on. But what I think is interesting is that whether or not the operations all look the same, whether or not their targeting is, is, is lined up to, to hit similar targets, or whether it's just kind of opportunistic and, and everyone's kind of trying all at once to, to do something, trying to manage something like that and communicate in a key, key, cohesive, coherent manner about that as well. It's, it's quite a feat considering the, the, the pressure that the group is under. Of course, we do need to, to take many of or all of these uh, reports, at least to an extent, with a, a, a pinch of salt because they are being published as propaganda, essentially. This is, the attacks themselves, I, I would see as propaganda as well, propaganda of the deed. But, but in any case, to be able to have any sort of coordination between different covert organizations that are in Somalia, Iraq, Egypt, Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan. I mean, you get the picture. It, 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 it's, it's, it's quite stunning that they're able to do it, given the, the amount of resources that are being expended in order to try to, to undermine the, the operation in general. And I mean, Herora and I were talking earlier a little bit about how the hierarchy of the group or how the the kind of leadership within the group has a, a really tough job on its hands to try to ensure that those different cells those different affiliates i mean some of the affiliates may just literally be a handful of people but but they they keep within certain strategic parameters certain operational parameters and don't go do something that's beyond the pale that, that will then be difficult for the, the the group to communicate about and that's something that in Abu Hamza al-Muhajir's guidance to or, or it's, a, it's a advice to leaders in the Islamic State it's a, a text that's one of the middle chapters in the book he speaks specifically to that about the need to, to ensure that the rank and file that they do not cause or deploy needless uncalculated violence against either enemies or rivals or people who are on the fence. And, and hearing that about a, a group like the Islamic State may seem stupid because, of course, this is an extremely violent organization that has no, no qualms, it seems, with, with killing civilians and, and non-combatants. But in any case, it, it, that, that sort of direction is there. Somehow, it, 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 its leaders, the, the hierarchy, where the, wherever that is, has to manage that that uh, incredibly difficult relationship between having a uh, kind of satellite relationship with the, the people who are on the ground actually deploying the operations, and and that that is something which I don't know. Just just since Thursday night, I've been thinking about that a lot because there's been a continuous stream of these these operations coming in, and, and, and 
is some indication of some coordination on some level and and i think any of that is 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 quite fascinating to think about i don't know if Aurora or craig you want to you want to pick up on, on that particular aspect or talk about something else but i'd be interested to hear your thoughts if you did to uh this is craig to to kind of reinforce charlie's points and and then tie it back to the, the idea of continuity or um, the routinization of of the organization itself as early as 2006-7 and it's made fun of for claiming to be a state and having departments as early as 2007 an agricultural department right these these this routinization as well as leadership succession you know with the uh, which which happens uh, again in 2010 when Abu Bakr takes over this the 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 legitimization of certain practices in the group have kept it cohesive you know in answer to your question Chelsea it's kept it it's helped keep it uh, cohesive and it's helped prevent ideological splits from from tearing the organization apart and they've had splinter groups uh, like Jolani's and the current form HTS that group struggled a lot recently even though they probably have better ideas than the group and it's quite possible because they've changed so much that they've, they're unable to maintain some type of organizational cohesion, right? This, this constant change has led to con- many more people defecting away from it. And the Islamic State, you know, is almost like, well, right, wrong, or indifference, we've decided this is the way we're doing things and this is how we're doing them. And then people can complain about it, but at the end of the day, if you leave the organization, that's on you, but you've also violated, you know, you're, you're going against practice that's been around now for you know 10-15 years so I think that helps them a lot and and the campaigns that Charlie's talking about you can see these as early as 2004 with you know targeting police stations across uh, Iraq in the in the predecessor group you can see them in pilgrim strikes after the Islamic State's declared and they have a very sectarian kind of priorities, particularly after the awakening. You can see it in their targeting campaigns that they publicize and run just as Charlie describes now in its early forms against awakening leaders who, in their words, have betrayed, you know, the Sunni communities of Ambar, Nineveh, Saladin, and so forth. So, and, and these are, these a lot of these principles and, or the rationale behind these types of campaigns can get spelled out in documents uh, like the Fallujah Memorandum, which is one of our chapters that talks about their strategy of 2009 to try to get back into the game. So this is a question I'll pose to Heroro, which I think is really interesting, especially looking at the text and thinking about ISIS as a group. How does it blend emotional appeals with strategic foresight. And I know you mentioned this in the book, but I wanted to get more of a deeper dive on it because I think it's it's a very powerful mechanism that ISIS uses in its media as well as its speeches and texts and so forth. You know, this, I guess, appreciation for synchronizing action and words, recognizing that the gap between what you say and what you do is fundamentally a credibility gap. And therefore you need to narrow that. Recognizing that for populations that are experiencing perhaps the most acute of crisis, that to demonstrate to those populations that you're a, that you're a credible actor, 
that you're credible because you say do gap is narrow and and that you recognize that you're essentially in a competition you don't need to be perfect you just need to be better than your adversaries you know you you can kind of see this once again in you know in in zakawi's thinking for example you know when you read when you read about his first speeches when you read his 2004 letter to al-qaeda's leaders where he's basically laying out his strategy for iraq in there you can see the way that you 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 see that when whether it is it, and i'm i'm sure that it's not just an indication of azakawi's strategic thinking but the thinking of probably his collective um in a circle there this appreciation for not just appealing through what we call say rational choice types appeal hey here are the cost and the benefits but yeah that th- those kind of emotional appeals a- a- appealing to them on the basis of their th- their identity and 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 using that uh, not just as a lever but also a wedge and using ultimately violence as the as as the as one of the most powerful kind of wedges and essentially using violence in an effort to plunge Iraq into a sectarian kind of bloodbath so that you place the population which you want to appeal to into a situation where they at least from the calculations of 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 Zakawi and he's in a circle have no choice but to choose but to choose Zakawi and and his men and so this this appreciation for bringing together propaganda and action and ensuring that there is a there there are these strategies that are that are kind of driving both are really really important this understanding that hey if if i want to appeal to this audience and i want to be able to sell my my actions i need to have messaging that's kind of wrapped around that but at the same time i need to have messaging that kind of appeals to something that 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 that, that is emotional that is that, that's kind of tied to identity that is kind of going to shape the lenses through which the population understands not only themselves but the situation they're in and also their potential enemies that becomes really important as well and 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 you just see the way that this that this understanding kind of permeates through its doctrine the way that the the materials the the the, the doctrine that they kind of disseminate out to their members that these kind of concepts and ideas are all sown in up in, in in there as well and i think just to return to what craig and charlie were saying before it's these kind of core core principles um that help to give stability to the group and if and 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 you can't you know be on the other side of the world and acknowledged by central unless you're adopting this manhaj unless you're adopting these 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 kind of guiding principles so it helps to kind of create potentially a a a cohesiveness or at least something that looks like cohesiveness on 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 the outside it's really hard not to read you know uh these these speeches by zakawi the, the the letters the writings of and and not kind of think to yourself that there is that there is an appreciation of the psychology of war and the importance of words and action for for achieving dominance in in that psychological war this might be a difficult question because it's quite broad and it's going to be based on personal opinions as well and your personal interests as researchers but even though all the texts are important in their own right in your opinions what would you say 
are the most monumental documents within the book. Like I said, this could be personal choice or broader perspectives of understanding the group. So I'm going to just throw that question out to all of you and let you take it away from there. To go first, um, if that's all right, guys. I really am just fascinated uh, every time I go through the Fallujah Memorandum, which is one of the earlier chapters of the book, simply because it remains, so it was written a long time ago, during another period of, of difficulty and tribulation for the Islamic State. And it remains, or so much of it remains so salient today. And I don't know, reading the, 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 the whole process of putting this book together, I've, I've really enjoyed the, the, the earlier documents and just as Craig, and I mean, we, we've kind of been hovering around the issue of continuity throughout this talk, but, but, but whenever I'd come across something that, that, that remains absolutely relevant today, years and years on from when it was first kind of put into circulation, first conceived of, that just, that, that kind of strikes a chord with me. And, and, and I think to be able to cram as much of those, that kind of document into to one publication, I'm really thrilled about. I might pass the, the torch to, to Craig now to see if he wants to say anything about the Fallujah Memorandum before going on to his own favourite document. I mean, it, it, it may be his, but yeah, I, I, I think um, that, that's, the, that's the kind of thing that really excites me about this, this whole book project. Yeah, I, would, I mean, the Fallujah Memorandum, very unique. It, it was very difficult to find. It's been mentioned, but it, uh, that I understand or know or have seen, it's the only time it's, it's been fully translated and analyzed in, in, in a source like this. And so, it, and it's, it's quite fascinating, as Charlie said, I, I think, but I, I've gravitate for my own personal reasons to the, the political statements of the leaders and understanding the Islamic State as a political, a violent political movement is very important. And it's also probably the under, understudied, which is why I end up gravitating towards that, those types of documents. Abu Umar's fourth speech which is in the chapter on the first year of the islamic state tends to be one that i i go back to a lot and try to you know tie his thinking to zarqawi's as harara was talking about earlier and then forward to some of the chapters charlie authored on abu Bakr to, to kind of make those ties but but isis as a political movement as opposed to simply of a bunch of violent thugs who showed up with guns and everyone had no choice but to submit. It's a misunderstanding of the group. The group has always been working diligently, certainly violently, but also diligently to put together po political coalitions behind the scenes amongst Sunni tribes, other Sunni resistance groups that are struggling against the government on their own and trying to recruit many members over. If you look at the biographies, which the Islamic State publishes post, post facto, you know, posthumously, you can see that, you know, at many, many points, Abu Bakr is another one, that they start out in other groups and they end up in the Islamic State throughout history. And, and that's, those are due to political, kind of the political machinations. And in speeches like Abu Umar's uh, fourth speech, 
really highlight the political considerations of a leader um, on how he's going to knit together a coalition to take on the United States, the Iraqi government, and other governments eventually. And it's pretty fascinating to me. Yeah, it's really hard to go past the Fallujah Memorandum for all the reasons that kind of Charlie had, had, had said and kind of Craig kind of hinted to. I think that what's really significant about that text is the historical context from which it emerged. And so it provides the reader with kind of a bit of a retrospective of kind of what, of, of what the what the movement is kind of thinking with everything that they've kind of gone through at that point. And then it kind of hints to where things are going to move. Like, it, it, like it's, it's and, and kind of the, the, the implications that are sewn in there, particularly when you kind of read it with, with the benefit of kind of hindsight. But in addition to the Fallujah memorandum, I have to say that, that the advice to members and the kind of more of the doctrinal type texts really yeah, I mean, they're, they're really important for me and particularly for the kind of work that that um, I've been doing in different places, you know, going into uh, communities where Islamic State have, have or pro-Islamic State groups have kind of controlled that territory or even those those kind of cities and towns and just referring back to that, to, to that doctrine in, 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 this, in, in this book and seeing the way that those ideas have kind of impacted the propaganda and the military and the kind of the governance strategies in like the jungles of the Philippines is extraordinary to me. And going back to these central documents, going back to these historical documents and kind of seeing and just reminding yourself of, of, of where, yeah, like where, where, where these ideas kind of emerged and that they have gone from the minds of these kind of leaders and strategists to, to, shape the way that militants in the jungles in Southeast Asia or the mountains of um, Central Asia or in, 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 or in Africa at the moment is, is, is extraordinary for me. So yeah, I, 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 I'm hedging a little bit, but yeah, the Fallujah Memorandum chapter five is, 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 probably, is probably right up there. I'm followed by those, those, those doctrinal texts. And this question I'm going to pose to Charlie because it deals with ISIS's social media and we all know it's gained so much attention, especially in mainstream media, because of its strong presence and very active presence, we could say as well. But we could even argue that social media really helped shape the group into what it is today, especially at its height, because it helped disseminate so much of its information. So how can we differentiate between official texts and ISIS's relationship with its followers and supporters in the social media online environment? That's a, a, a really good um, question, Chelsea. I, I think, well, there's a, a few different ways. I, I would, first of all, agree with you that, that social media and, and generally kind of information operations and influence operations and, and the, the propaganda that it's distributed online over the last few years has been very very important in shaping the islamic state and and making it is making it what it is today in in many respects but i i also really think that the off the 
those same activities in offline spaces have been as if not more important from an insurgency perspective in in sustaining it especially now when it's it's kind of it's it's facing a tougher job getting its its stuff out there and also just putting putting enough stuff together to keep people interested there's just on on that front i think there's just so much that we don't know and and i mean conversations that i had with people in syria and iraq while it was still in control of of large bits of syria and iraq spoke to the the complexity of 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 what it was was doing but also kind of gave legs to the 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 boasts it made about the infrastructure that it had in place so dozens of media kiosks in, in in urban centers and roving Dawa caravans and, and all sorts of things which which really enabled it to, to recruit and, and sustain itself and sustain that level of interdependence that it needed from the local civilian population as well in order to, to, to get through those years. But just to jump back onto online matters, I think one thing which the Islamic State is really obsessed with is brand, well, brand full stop but brand unity and having ownership of its brand and 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 being able to monopolize that 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 brand as well and it it doesn't happen so much these days there's a period back in 2016 2017 in particular and and early 2018 actually where it's central media the one so this is this it's kind of overarching propaganda authority would publish alerts red and white alerts via often telegram but not always where it would admonish supporters for for saying too much about the islamic state for being too vocal about what it was doing for being too keen to produce their own propaganda in aid of it which is interesting because in in many ways it was uh, reliant on the work of what it referred to as munasirin so the the supporters and and the foundations that they set up yet at the same time it, it was very keen not to uh, lose control of what it saw as it, it, its kind of neck of the woods that it uniquely had the right to to communicate original news about itself. It uniquely had the right to communicate the deaths of leaders and and notable figures and and, and so on. And I, I guess there's a, a quite a nice harmony there with with what we were talking about a little earlier in relation to group cohesion and I mean even Abu Hamza's advice about keeping people in line the the central media to one of the islamic state has been trying to do that for for years now keep its supporters in line so that they jump when it says jump they produce uh photo montages and video clips when it tells them to but they crucially know the parameters within which their activities are meant to be and they don't go beyond that and and it's been fascinating watching the various disputes arise between Munasa foundations or, or just prominent supporters and, and people kind of jumping down each other's throats if they're saying too much but also not just people jumping down each other's throats but but the central media to one of the Islamic State coming out and saying no you do not say that to people who are committed supporters of it I, I think that's that's a, a really fascinating thing currently I mean the, the, the online ecosystem is is a lot more diverse perhaps than it was. Telegram isn't as reliable as it used to be. Twitter certainly isn't as reliable. I mean, both of these are still very, very important platforms for it. But but it's, it's the, the sands are constantly shifting and it's, it's 
takes a bit of uh, time to, 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 to keep on top of it, but it's, it certainly keeps me on my toes, keeps lots of other people on their toes as well. It's, it's, it's a lot of really great research still being done on, on the, the on, online side of things. And, and now that there's a bit less um, content coming out, hopefully there'll be some, some deeper kind of analytical studies of the, 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 the broader cultural principles that underlie its uh, propaganda as well. And I'm going to follow this up and, and anyone can answer this. This is a question from one of our listeners and it has to do with both offline and online aspects of the group and going back to the group's roots. And so they ask that during the time of exonogist existential crises, both territorial and in the social media sphere with all of the takedowns that we've seen throughout the last couple of years, do you see any common themes or texts that the group uses to justify itself? And what the listener means by this is, do you see social media takedowns and military takedowns as one in the same as threats to the existence of the group? So I will throw that out to any one of you that would like to answer that and go from there. Yeah, no problem. Because I think, you know, uh, a lot of times I like to work backwards uh, from today, and, and I think the question is much more about today, but um, looking looking at the, going again, going back to studying the history of the of this media department, the, the United States coalition and others in, in the history of its engagement with this group has, I'd say by 2007, really really uh, focuses on, you know, targeting the media with the military. So that's a pretty astute question. And, and that's been a, a counter strategy to ISIS for quite some time, both physically. So, or, you know, obviously originally it's targeting physical media sites where uh, they're producing CDs and material that can then be distributed by hand in the way that Charlie talked about kiosks. And obviously they didn't have kiosks then, but they were, you know, clandestinely and surreptitiously spreading this propaganda handbills are, are another good example you know good really tried and true propaganda techniques that, that Herrera has written about throughout history and the 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 kinetic action to to kind of to to suppress the media organization itself is something we've seen as recently as 2016 when the coalition is is able to in Syria is able to exploit some type of security lapse uh, and kill, you know, three of the top leader media leaders in the organization, and and that kind of complements the the online suppression that we've seen. I guess more recently with Europol's actions, but obviously the the takedowns of co the coordinated takedowns of social media companies, writ large. But yeah, I'll let Charlie expound on that a little bit more. Yeah, just to, to to follow up on what Craig was saying, I think the 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 way things have gone for the Islamic State and its supporters in online spaces over the last where are we now May? So actually, the pretty bang on six months has been very interesting to track. I, I think one thing which is really important though is that I mean, the, back in November, at the end of November, Europol coordinated a day of action with Telegram, which led to. Uh, a great many very well-established Islamic State supporter channels and groups being knocked offline permanently. And that was very significant. It, it caused 
uproar among its supporters and and Europol very rightly came out and kind of spoke about it as a great success but but what it shouldn't have done which it did do is say that that the Islamic state was now no longer using telegram which is just a, a load of rubbish really and and it was a load of rubbish at the time and it, it it's even more of a load of rubbish now and I think one of the things that that in trying to understand the the kind of merit of, of suppressing accounts of disrupting online communication and, and so on and so forth there needs to be more nuance in the, the the discussion about what can and can't be done what value there is to to doing or taking certain action and, and also what disadvantages there are as well but but as things stand i mean the the islamic state supporter community is is, is still well established back to being well established on telegram on hoop messenger in particular it's it's spent a lot of time trying to to entrench itself there has its own service the server on something called rocket chat i mean it, it it has spread itself as a result of the action taken against it in november and and that gives it a bit more depth it, it makes it less reliant on telegram and has has been a lesson learned for a lot of its supporters but at the same time it, it's certainly not as well rooted as it was on on telegram which still remains its, its favored platform for online outreach and, and influence and and that is to an extent a significant victory against it so there's a, what i'm trying to say i guess is that there's, there's a lot of kind of give and take with every bit step forward there are movements backwards whether the movements backwards uh, are, are are greater than the step forward is another question but again just to 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 move back offline i think we really need to be be thinking about again the fact that that the islamic state as a movement has been here before it, it it's familiar with this kind of insurgency it's familiar with covert operations covert dissemination of of information and covert networks and and it it may have had to adapt move away from the over physical structures that it was reliant on in say 2014 2015 2016 in particular but certainly it's 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 still in territory that it has a good grasp of now so getting an understanding of 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 the the stuff that's going on underground or or going on in a, a less explicit less overt manner than it was before that that will be a lot more difficult it's it's not simply a case of of collecting materials and and kind of speaking to people iraq and syria now because the network has gone underground it's it's the materials the the ideas the issues that are being raised in order to ensure group cohesion and and ideological cohesion at that much more kind of cellular level is is uh, a much trickier task we know it's happening there are videos photos of of various efforts going on in in west africa syria iraq uh, Egypt, they they come out still, but but getting a very kind of nuanced grasp of what what literatures, what content is being distributed at that level now between the rank and file, between leaders, mid level commanders, and, and and whatnot, that's uh, a, a much tr- trickier task for for researchers, I think. And that point that that Charlie's made there, I think, is 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 really important here. If it's on social media, have no doubt they are important, both in terms of the research and also all of the kind of the practical things that, 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 that have 
that, that have been done in terms of you know um, monitoring and taking down and uh, takedowns and and kind of all the other kind of counter efforts. But I would caution against I guess both scholars and practitioners inadvertently kind of elevating the fanboys up too much. Now supporters, those supporters and amplifiers and the amplifiers come online, there's no doubt that, that, that they are important, but, but proportionality of focus and, and, and you know, how we kind of deploy finite resources is, is, is really important here. And we need to be careful that we don't kind of overemphasize the online and overemphasize kind of social media and kind of, you know, look at what a, a personas online are kind of disseminating out and, and, and saying that that's somehow indicative of, of, of the health of the um, Islamic State proper. I think the most important efforts for really striking at the heart of this movement certainly where it hurts the most, is it will involve getting on the ground and supporting those who are on the front lines, who are in the communities that Islamic State threatening, that, is, that those areas where Islamic State once controlled, they have now been pushed out, but have no doubts that, 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 that their, their uh, networks kind of remain in those communities, the networks will kind of be seeking to um, um, influence those those communities in the hope of re-emerging there once again, and and I think that supporting, for example, civil society in those areas is is especially important. And the resources um, necessary to do that, um, they don't need high, but they need to be kind of targeted. And I think that that's gonna, that that's perhaps is is is, is where. Um, so much of the research that kind of Charlie was referring to there and, and, and the importance of understanding those ground level efforts and how to support those communities and to kind of help them kind of push back. Like that is really where it's, it's, it's going to hurt this movement because you're, you're kind of, in a sense, helping its potential future kind of like populations to, to resist and kind of establish a buffer in their own communities against the movement. So we have another question that came in from a listener, which I think is perfect for what you've just said. And that is, to what extent were ISIS's objectives unlimited defeat in a global sense? And to what extent were they more limited to regional politics or raids as tools to compel? And adding on to this, did it change over time? And if so, when? And how does the balance compare to Al-Qaeda? That's, a, that's quite a, a, a tough question you've got right there I think it really um, is. <laughs> yes. yeah I think I mean for, for me personally and I I think we might have uh, different opinions on this I, I'm not sure for me personally I, I think that there is or has been a, a kind of competition between perhaps competition is the wrong word but the 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 extent to which pragmatism dictates what the Islamic State does or tries to do in theatre, to me, seems to have shifted back and forth in accordance with, with what it's capable of doing, really. I mean, one of the, the questions that comes up a lot in conversations you have with people around this, this set of issues is, was the Islamic State really trying to 
do something permanent when it took control of Mosul? Or was that overreach? Was it kind of just messing around, trying to disrupt and undermine security within the city, make it costly to the Iraqi government, just cause trouble, basically? And then, lo and behold, it, it, it found itself in control of it. I mean, of course, there's, there's the, the very likely possibility that it was something in the middle. But, but I mean, I don't know. When, when thinking about that question, I, I kind of reflect on really the extent to which it matters currently. Like, does the fact that, I mean, whether it was overreach or not, does the fact that the Islamic State no longer has control of Mosul and that Mosul was, was ended up being something that was extremely costly for it. Does that, how does that impact on its ability to survive as a, a an organization ideology or, or movement today? And I don't know, I've been very interested in how it has communicated about Mosul and, and Raqqa in particular, since it lost control of both of those cities and, and, and the way that it's, it's communicated around defeat and, and try to, 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 to navigate through the cultivation of a kind of legacy for what those cities used to be like when it was or when they were under its control i think that's been been something that's been really fascinating so i mean whether it's the way that it would frame uh, or still does frame videos produced by provinces the world over frame them or couch them within sequences shot in in the, the kind of heartlands of of its caliphate back in 2016 2017 so when it was doing is what it considered to be islamic governance at its best and and kind of using those scenes to to say look look at how great it was when we had it and, and this is why we're continuing to fight today so we can, can spread this kind of implementation of of islamic rule beyond beyond our immediate sphere of operations now and and and, and kind of reorientating itself to to be able to take advantage of of that period of time instead of suffering under the weight of 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 the kind of unambiguous defeats that it it faced faced in in, in both Raqqa and Mosul and and other places as well so that that's just my my take on it it kind of somewhat answers the question but but also i guess poses another about the extent to which that calculation or miscalculation depending on what your opinion is in relation to it how that continues to to impact on and 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 live through the the movement today and and moving into to to future years the 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 question really is a kind of offers an interesting case study in the extent to which kind of ideological compulsion versus practical capability and then opportunity, the way that those three factors kind of interact. You know, there is a ideological compulsion that drives this movement and the extent to which that ideological drive that ideological compulsion at times may override its practical capabilities and it is forced because of its apparent commitment to those ideological frameworks and concepts 
to make decisions or approval of decisions or as a consequence of opportunity, be put into a position where they have to do something practically because of that, because of that compulsion that is meant to sit at the heart of the group. But of course, there's the practical capability aspect here is that the momentum of war can sometimes take a group, it can take kind of those on the ground to perhaps in, in, in directions that maybe they weren't expecting to, they hadn't planned to, but the opportunity, again, to come back to opportunity, had kind of emerged again. I think that when the movement is in, is in a position, for example, when it really, its transnational spread, you know, kind of becomes formalised in 2013 with that, with, with, with kind of the, the, the establishment of, of, of ISIS moving from Iraq into kind of Syria. And then over the next year, year and a half, as it was able to attract kind of foreigners and its transnational networks kind of spread. And then, you know, perhaps those who were in um, other countries wanted to formalize their allegiance the, the extent to which the movement and its leadership then had to make a decision and say, well, do we take advantage of this opportunity or, or, or um, is it practical for us to do it given, given the conflict that we're in? I think that this, this interplay of three factors is really important. Now, will we ever really know what the, what, what, what the thinking was? Well, well, in some cases, yes. In other cases, perhaps not at the moment. And it will be reliant on primary source materials to kind of get us to that point on a case-by-case basis. But, gee, it's got to be tough. It's got to be tough trying to find that balance between, you know, adhering to what you proclaim ideologically, ensuring that you have the practical capability to, to make certain decisions over others, and finally, of course, just the opportunism, the opportunistic things that emerge, the way that your followers, the supporter base, can take you in directions which perhaps you, as a movement, as a group, as a province, weren't, weren't necessarily ready to go? It's a fantastic question. Uh, I'll, I'll just, yeah. I'm sorry, Chelsea, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask if you wanted to weigh in as well. So, you know, the, the ISIS reader, from, from how the ISIS reader can help inform this, you can see different throughout its, its that arc of history that, that you described in your, your original question or one of your original questions. You know, this group is, you know, lobbied hard to get into Al-Qaeda in the first place in 2004, all throughout 2004, really, uh, and that's covered. Uh, but then, and markets itself as a good soldier of Al-Qaeda as late as 2012. And yet, as early as 2007, you know, they're picking, you know, Iraqi leader without the approval of Al-Qaeda. They call them the Emir of the Faithful, which is a direct, almost, you know, it's almost a direct assault on al-Qaeda's hegemony over the larger movement. And there's also indicators that we that we have in the book, you know, again in 2007, that there's a divergence of the Monhaj, the methodology between and the philosophies of the two groups that's commented on by one of the, by an early defector from the Islamic State back to Al-Qaeda saying these people, are, they even call it the something, you know, the Islamic State's way, the, the Daulah's way. So so there's there's a lot of indicators here that they kind of were, as, as Herrero, you know, put it, culturally wanted to be good soldiers, but at the same time created 
enough flexibility for themselves to to include later on with Abu Bakr the opaqueness of his allegiance to the larger organization gave themselves opportunities to develop uh, a, a, a whole another track and establish some type of global influence and eventually try to dominate the, the global movement. Kind of a bit of an extension of that question, you know, so, so we can approach that question by looking at that relationship with, with, with Al Qaeda, but we can even keep it focused within the Islamic State movement and kind of, you know, the, the you know, what, what were the, what were the drivers? What were the, you know, the, the, the rationale for accepting certain provinces and not acknowledging, not necessarily not acknowledging or, or, or accepting or accepting others. You know, it, it's a, the interplay of these factors, I think also potentially the more that we can kind of think about, think about that interplay potentially is a really useful way for practitioners as well to kind of find those leverage points that that can be used in you know in not just in potential messaging efforts but but also in terms of kind of targeted actions you know to kind of help to break open the the the, the fractures that often emerge as a consequence of this movement grappling with the with actually the question that was kind of posed to us and as, as Craig and Charlie have, have kind of um, spoken about earlier, yeah, there is this cohesiveness. There is a continuum there. Our book has tried to capture that, 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 that arc. But there's also been a lot of fractures over the years that the group has tried to grapple with. And I think that particularly in recent years, the dynamics at the heart of the question have, 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 really, have really been important for how some of those fractures have emerged. So to wrap up the show and this amazing discussion, I just want to throw out there if any of you have any final thoughts or things that we didn't touch upon that you think are glaringly need to be out there. So I'm just going to pass it over to all of you and just wrap up the talk with final thoughts or anything that you think we should touch upon. So I think one of the most important issues, and, and we've actually touched upon it a couple of times um, throughout the talk, but I think just the appreciation for history and the lessons that can be drawn from that history. You know, that, that, that line, you know, we've never seen, we haven't seen anything like this before. The, the kind of the Hegel on 2014 line is, 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 is something that, you know, we hear all the time, just in different kind of contexts. When, when, when we're working with different groups, we're, we're, we're traveling overseas and talking to different whether they're military people or government people or, or, or in civil society, you know, and they're kind of surprised by what this movement has done. And sure, there's plenty of, there's plenty of surprises along the way, but, but, but fundamentally th- there is a lot that can be taken from, from history. And we hope that in this book, we've been able to capture um, some of those really core fundamental dynamics and how they've played out all the way from the nineties and continues to play out um, to this day. And I think that there's a, that appreciation for the history has got to be grounded in those primary source materials. Yes, this is a book about the Islamic State movement and it's kind of this decades-long evolution. But in a sense, it's as much about what its adversaries have done, at least 
by, by implication. And so there's a lot that can be generated to, to kind of help not just our understanding of this movement in the past, but thinking and kind of projecting in, into the future about how it may evolve. And I think that that's, that's a task that's going to be really important for, for scholars, but it's, and, and, you know, scholars in a sense have responsibility to the practitioners to help kind of shape their thinking. Um, and I hope that this book is in a very small way, a, a, a contribution to that, to that larger effort. All I would add to, to what Haroi just said is that what we've, written in this book is 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 by no means the the final word on on any of these texts so i mean i i think we're we're keen and i, I think i can speak for for my co-authors here we're, we're we're very keen for this book to be the beginning of a discussion or a set of discussions about the the issues that we've been um talking about today but but for it to be a kind of iterative process where we we all begin to 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 think on a a more kind of continuing and changing basis about how groups like the Islamic State work, how they operate, how things change for them, and and how that impacts on on us, or how that impacts on on governments or militaries or, or practitioners engaged in 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 actions to try to undermine or degrade them. So 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 yeah, that that would be my my final thought on this that that we want this to be the the start of a, a series of other conversations uh, i think that the, the more the more people are talking about primary sources in in this more critical but so kind of strategically or, or keeping an eye on 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 the strategic medium and long term the better i think that that's that's something really useful that could come out of this and that, that i'd hope would come out of this yeah, I think uh, you know there's a lot of discussion now about whether whether the Islamic State is going to come back. Do they have the capability and potential to come back, or are they or aren't they? And you know, it's really hard to tell. I mean, but you can you can use on one on the one sense, you know, echoing my colleague, you can you can use this book and look back at strategy that they've had, their methodology, how they 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 look at violence and engagement with populations, and and try to try to project, you know, how they'll go about you know, trying to sustain themselves and eventually reach their political goal, which is to reestablish the Caliphate, which was just, you know, taken from them. They were defeated politically and militarily, at least temporarily or for a period of time. And so one thing the book doesn't, isn't able to really develop and, and I think needs a lot of further research is what is this particular insurgency doctrine that they've had? Because we we try to piece it together from, you know, past documents but it's evolved over time and it's certainly evolved since 2014 and there's a dearth of documents on that we've seen some nava articles on what their insurgency doctrine is but a lot of times people kind of simplistically hand wave it and say it's uh, management of savagery which isn't even it's not even in the book and it's not even in islamic state text right and there's doubts as to how much even if it's been taught to to lower level folks is how much a document like that informed them uh, or whether they've evolved, uh, developed a lot of this stuff independently. And that's, it's really hard to tell. And there haven't been, there's no document like Charlie was talking about Abu Hamza's, you know, guidance for soldiers. There's n there's not as much of that kind of general guidance on how to run an attritional campaign against really powerful states to include coalitions, a very powerful coalition against them. So that's, 
that's something I think that still needs a lot of work and, you know, a lot of thought to kind of trace through all of that. So hopefully, again, like Charlie was saying, this can start as a foundation for continued research in this area. Well, Charlie, Hororo, Craig, I want to thank you for coming on the Loopcast and talking about the ISIS reader. It's really a fantastic piece of work that I know so much time and effort has gone into. So thank you for bringing it into fruition. And also it's so amazing to have three fantastic scholars all in one place across multiple time differences. So thank you for being so flexible for that as well and coming on the show. Thanks, Joseph. Been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I'd add it's a fourth great scholar, Chelsea. Uh, we really admire your work and appreciate you having us having us on the Loopcast. Oh, thank you. That's, that's an honor. Yeah, ditto that. Absolutely.